0: Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. This episode is the second part of a two-part look at the 1980s career of Steven Spielberg. If you have not done so already, please go back to Episode 3, Steven Spielberg in the 1980s, The Director, before continuing on here. I'll wait. While the 1980s is where Steven Spielberg as a visionary creative force for himself and others really came into play, Spielberg had executive produced his first movie back in 1978. I Want to Hold Your Hand would be the first feature film directed by Robert Zemeckis, whose student film, A Field of Honor, had come to the attention of Spielberg. Zemeckis and his writing partner, Bob Gale, would write Spielberg's 1979 film, 1941. But before that, Spielberg would get Universal Studios to put up the $2.8 million budget for this comedy about three New Jersey teenagers who try to meet the Beatles the night they make their historic American television debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. Actors Nancy Allen, Wendy Jo Sperber, Bobby DeCicco, and Eddie Deason would all go on to be featured in Spielberg's World War II satire the following year, and Mark McClure and Sperber would be featured in another future Spielberg-Zemeckis collaboration, but we'll get to that soon. But to ensure that this film got made, Spielberg promised the studio that if the Greenhorn director did a poor job, he would step in and direct the movie himself. The movie was an enjoyable romp, and perhaps a bit ahead of its time for baby boomer nostalgia, grossing less than $2 million. But the film was recently given a 4K restoration and Blu-ray release by the Criterion Company, which also includes two of Zemeckis' student films. Spielberg's first producer credit for the 1980s would come the first summer of the decade with another film directed by Robert Zemeckis, Used Cars. Now wait Minute. what the hell is this? Is this a 1977 SL for dollars That's too f- Of all the Kurt Russell movies, Used Cars is my favorite. He's hilarious, as is Jack Warden and especially Garrett Graham, as two groups of competing used car dealerships located across the street from one another and run by feuding brothers who will do almost anything to get a leg up on the competition. It would take years for used cars to find its audience, and it's now considered a comedy classic, but the $8 million movie would only gross $11.7 million upon its release, still losing Columbia several million dollars after prints and advertising costs were included. In 1981, Steven Spielberg would formally found his own production company, Amblin Entertainment, named after his 1968 short film of the same name. The first official Amblin production would be Continental Divide, which would remain an atypical Amblin production. It's a romantic comedy, for a start, maybe one of three in the entire history of Amblin. It's the only movie John Belushi made without his Saturday Night Live co-star and best friend Dan Aykroyd after the duo left the show in 1979. It's the only time Belushi would ever play the romantic lead, and he pulls it off fairly well. Since the film was mostly shot in the wilderness, far away from the hangers-on and enablers who would fuel his excesses, Belushi showed how good an actor he could have become. Directed by Michael Apted, who was coming off Coal Miner's Daughter, Continental Divide would be released by Spielberg's home studio Universal in September of 1981 and would gross a respectful $15 million. It wasn't quite Animal House money, and it wouldn't be enough to keep Belushi from spiraling out of control. He would be dead less than six months after its release. Although it's produced by Spielberg and Frank Marshall, his partner at Amblin, and presented as a Steven Spielberg production, June 1982 Poltergeist was not an Amblin production. Based on a story by Spielberg, who also co-wrote the screenplay, Poltergeist was, upon its release... And remains to this day, one of the best horror films ever made. they here! The film was a smash hit, grossing more than $76.6 million and becoming the 8th highest-grossing movie of the year. And it would be nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Original Score, Best Sound Editing, and Best Visual Effects. Poltergeist would lose all three categories it was nominated in to Spielberg's other movie from 1982, E.T. It would also be director Toby Hooper's biggest hit amongst his 16 theatrically released motion pictures. We still talk about Poltergeist nearly four decades later because, as I said before, it is one of the best horror movies ever made. Even the lousy sequels and that horrible remake cannot remove any of the shine from this film. Texas Chainsaw may have made Toby Hooper's name, but it would be Poltergeist that gave him his career. And we film fans should be eternally grateful for that, even if his future film output would never come close to matching his work here. Spielberg's next film as producer wasn't originally supposed to be a movie. Gremlins was a writing sample created by Chris Columbus to get his foot in the proverbial door, which it most certainly did. As Steven Spielberg explained in a behind-the-scenes documentary for the 2002 DVD release of the movie, Columbus's script was one of the most original things he had come across in years, so he bought it. Spielberg hired Joe Dante to direct the film, having enjoyed Dante's Jaws parody Piranha years earlier and having worked with him on the ill-fated Twilight Zone movie. Proving that the market can expand when demand calls for it, Gremlins would end up being released on June 8, 1984, the same day as Ghostbusters, and would gross over $148 million during the summer and fall, where it would end up being the fourth highest grossing movie of the year. But since it would cost less than half what Ghostbusters cost, and would not have the same kind of profit participation a film with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman would have, The film was far more profitable for Warner Brothers than its competitor ever could have been for Columbia. It said Ghostbusters still hasn't become profitable for Columbia after 35 years, but maybe that's another story for another podcast. The next Amblin production was 1985's Fandango. Every living species, there is a stage of growth between infancy and adulthood. In most animals, it occurs during the first year of life. In humans, it happens right after college. Ah! Innocent critters crossed on the highway alive. Join five best friends on the road. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? It'll work, Philip. We're facing imminent death. It'll be just like water skiing, Philip. Hey, how are we gonna stop? You are the most irresponsible person I have ever met. Somebody had to be. It's a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. There's Where some will graduate into manhood. I'm not a weenie. And others will dive in head first. Hey! Which one of you geeks grabbed the wrong shoe? Who's got my laundry? We're talking mega malfunction here! A whole wash day shot to hell. Fandango. This is stuff. Made of, How involved Spielberg was in the making of it is a source of contention. Some say he was only involved in bringing director Kevin Reynolds in to make a feature-length version of a student film of his. Some say Spielberg was far more involved in the creation of the film and took his name off the final product because he was disappointed. Which is a fair cop. Fandango isn't a very good movie, but the pedigree of it is certainly impressive, This would be the film where Reynolds would first team with his longtime collaborator, Kevin Costner. It would be the feature debut for Susie Amos, the first studio feature for Judd Nelson, and it would feature early starring roles for Sam Robards and the late, great Glenn Headley. Some critics were kind to the movie, but audiences would not be given much of a chance to see the film. When it opened in the final weekend of January... It would play in only 27 theaters and gross less than $100,000 before being pulled out of theaters at the end of its first week. Quentin Tarantino claims he saw the film five times in theaters that week, which I, I guess is possible. Spielberg did have his name front and center on his next producing gig. (laughs) The <laughs> first and send to the meeting and the is <laughs> going to be in the meeting and then the meeting is going to in the meeting and going to the 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 and going to He came up with the story for The Goonies and served as one of its executive producers. The original teaser trailer you just heard highlighted some of Spielberg's biggest successes using selected letters and the scores from Gremlins, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Close Encounters, Temple of Doom, and E.T., along with director Richard Donner's successes with The Omens and Superman, to spell out the title of the new film without giving a damn thing away. The Goonies was supposed to be the big hit film for the summer of 1985, but that title would go to another Spielberg-produced movie, which we'll talk about in a moment. Still, its $61 million gross would put it ninth on the list of the highest-grossing movies of the year, and would go on to become a cult hit on video, with regular declarations from Donner and some of the actors that a sequel is still in the works more than 34 years later. The film that would not only become the biggest hit of the summer, but the highest-grossing film of 1985, and the eighth-highest-grossing movie of the entire decade, was, of course, Back to the Future. How far are you going? About thirty years. Universal would release Back to the Future four weeks after Warner's released The Goonies. I saw Back to the Future several times in theaters that year. I took my then six-year-old brother on opening weekend, and he loved it so much that he wanted to see it again, and I promised we'd go see it again that following Saturday. When I made that promise, I had forgotten that that was the day of Live Aid. But a promise is a promise. So when it was time to leave for the theater, I slapped a tape into the VCR, put it on four-hour record mode, and watched it the next day. And what I ended up taping was the best part of the concert, including U2, Queen, David Bowie, The Who, and Elton John. I know there were other acts, and a lot of crappy mtv Villa between sets, but even though I easily had watched it a hundred times before it finally snapped a few years later, I can't remember what other acts might have been on it. And seriously, that's one of my biggest memories of Back to the Future. I also remember how badly I wanted to see the footage of Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly then, and still do. I don't think it would be disrespectful to Eric Stoltz, who is undoubtedly a great actor, To put all of the Stoltz footage together and release it, let the fans decide for themselves how he would have stacked up as Marty McFly. The final film Spielberg would executive produce in 1985 was Barry Levinson's Young Sherlock Holmes. While there is little doubt of how about how great a filmmaker Barry Levinson could be after only two movies, 1982's Diner and 1984's The Natural, Young Sherlock Holmes would prove that even a great filmmaker like Levinson can have a misstep. Maybe the Baltimore-born Levinson wasn't the best director for an FX-heavy fantasy movie set in late Victorian-era England. Maybe the 20-something Pennsylvania-born Chris Columbus wasn't the best screenwriter to pen this movie. It has its moments, especially the then-cutting-edge use of CG effects to create a stained-glass night come to life. The three leads who play Holmes, Watson, and Holmes' love interest Elizabeth are rather good in their roles, Not too surprising, since one of them is the son of acclaimed actor Brian Cox, and one of them is the daughter of acclaimed actor Simon Ward. Holmes' aficionados may enjoy some of the liberal peppering of in-jokes, and Harry Potter fans and critics have pointed out a number of similarities between this film and the first novel of the popular young adult book series, but the film was not a success on either side of the Atlantic, and none of its young stars enjoyed any kind of lasting career in film entertainment. Levinson followed this up with the Baltimore-set comedy Tin Men, featuring Richard Dreyfuss in his best non-Spielberg-related role, and yes, I do include his Oscar-winning role in The Goodbye Girl, and Columbus would make his directorial debut two years later with Adventures in Babysitting, but two of these three young stars would not appear in any movies for at least another decade. The biggest professional news for Steven Spielberg for 1985 was the creation of his first television series, Amazing Stories. The show was so highly anticipated, at least by the media, that Spielberg would appear on the cover of Time magazine the week before the show premiered. We talked about the two episodes Spielberg produced in episode three, so here we'll look at the series as a whole. You must remember that in 1985, television was a much different environment. There were still only three major broadcast networks and a handful of non-sports entertainment cable channels, most of which played recycled low-budget television shows and movies from the past, and music videos. Top talent on either side of the movie camera were not necessarily flocking to be a part of the boob tube. Martin Scorsese and Clint Eastwood were simply not directing television at that time, but they both would direct their very first episode for television for their friend Stephen. After his episode of Amazing Stories called Mirror Mirror, Scorsese would not direct any episode of television for another 25 years, and Eastwood only would direct one other episode of television after his episode here called Vanessa in the Garden, which was written by Spielberg. That other show uh, Eastwood would shoot, it was an episode of the 2003 PBS documentary series The Blues, produced by Martin Scorsese. Amazing Stories was never a ratings hit, despite the name talent involved, but there was some really great talent involved at all ends. Actors like Bob Balaban, Joan Darling, Danny DeVito, and Timothy Hutton, who wanted to transition to directing, would each get an episode to show their expanding talent. Master animator Brad Bird would get one of his earliest breaks directing the only animated episode of the show. Established directors like Bob Clark, Joe Dante, Toby Hooper, Peter Hyams, Irvin Kirshner, and Robert Zemeckis would each direct an episode. Burt Reynolds would direct, but not star, in an episode with his good friend Dom DeLuise and then-wife Lonnie Anderson. And if there was any animosity between Spielberg and Kevin Reynolds about Fandango, it didn't stop them from working together the following year for an episode here. Cult filmmaker Paul Bartel, who we spoke about in episode four, would direct one episode in each of the two seasons, including one episode, Secret Cinema, which was a remake of his 1968 film debut. It's kind of wonderful and sad at the same time that a maverick filmmaker like Paul Bartel would find his biggest audience not with a film like Death Race 2000 or Eating Raoul, but on television, recycling his own material. And then the list of actors who starred in the show was truly amazing. Kevin Costner, Kiefer Sutherland, Bronson Pinchot, Brian James, Gregory Hines, Sid Caesar, Harvey Keitel, Sam Waterston, Tim Robbins, John Lithgow, Charles Durning, Patrick Swayze, Beau Bridges, Charlie Sheen, James Cromwell, Joe Pantoliano, Mark Hamill, Forrest Whitaker, David Carradine, Kira Sedgwick, Rhea Perlman, Tracy Walter, Emmett M. Walsh, Dick Miller, Christopher Lloyd, Jeffrey Jones, Robert Townsend, Michael Lerner, Lorraine Newman and Kathy Baker would all be featured in at least one episode. And yes, even Weird Al Yankovic makes an appearance. Of the 45 episodes produced for the show over the two years it ran on NBC, Spielberg would come up with the stories for 17 episodes. Another episode would be written by his sister Anne, who would co-write the Tom Hanks smash It Big with Gary Ross two years later, and Lowell Ganz and Babalu Mandel, the Oscar-nominated screenwriters of Splash would write the Joe Dante-directed episode Boo. The legendary Richard Matheson, who adapted his short story Duel for Spielberg in 1971, would write three episodes and come up with the story for a fourth, which would be written by his son, Richard Christian Matheson. Joshua Brand and John Falsey, who would create Saint Elsewhere in Northern Exposure, would write four episodes. Mick Garris, who would create the Showtime anthology series Masters of Horror, would write nearly a dozen episodes, and would do his first work as a director here. And the scores for the individual shows would be created by the likes of John Williams, James Horner, Bruce Broughton, Georges De La Rue, David Shire, Danny Elfman and Steve Bartek, David Newman, Thomas Newman, Michael Kamen, and Alan Silvestri. There was a lot of talent involved in the show, and the critics were mostly positive in their reviews, yet it never quite caught on with the viewers and it would end after its initial two-year commitment. Yet, in 2020, there will be a reboot of the show, although without the involvement of Spielberg. 1986 would see two productions bearing a Spielberg executive producer credit. The first was the alleged comedy The Money Pit. A sort of remake of the late 40s Cary Grant film Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, The Money Pit had about as good of a pedigree as a comedy could have in the mid-80s. Director Richard Benjamin was a well-respected actor who had made quite a splash with his feature-directing debut My Favorite Year in 1982. Writer David Geiler was better known for writing the original Alien movie, but his script here had been, written, been rewritten by an uncredited Lowell Ganz and Babalu Mandel, who had written for Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days before coming up with the screenplays for Night Shift and Splash. The cast was led by Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, And they were backed up by the likes of Maureen Stapleton, Joe Mantegna, Frankie Faisan, Josh Mostel, and Yakov Smirnov. But everything on this production is somehow off. Hanks and Long are not particularly funny. Benjamin directs us like he's a veteran of late 60s sitcoms. And even Gordon Mullis' cinematography is flat and uninspiring. But like many of the Hanks films at the time, it did a decent numbers at the box office, grossing five times its $10 million production cost. The other Spielberg movie of 1986 would change animation for the next decade. Don Bluth's An American Tale would become the highest-grossing non-Disney animated film at the time and would outgross Disney's own animated movie that year, The Great Mouse Detective. Its signature song, Somewhere Out There, would be nominated for an Academy Award and would win two Grammys, including Song of the Year and its hero, Fyvel Mauskowitz, who is partially based on Spielberg's maternal grandfather, would go on to become the official children's spokesperson for UNICEF. It would be the first G-rated film produced by Spielberg, and its success would help pave the way for the creation of Amblination in 1989, which in turn would pave the way for the creation of DreamWorks Animation in 1994, which has produced or distributed, as of October 2019, 37 films over 25 years, Winning three Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature and grossing more than $15 billion worldwide. Like 1985 and 1986, 1987 would feature two films executive produced by Spielberg. The first was Joe Dante's Innerspace, a hybrid sci-fi action comedy that wasn't quite the hit everyone was expecting. Written as a riff on Fantastic Voyage, Interspace features Dennis Quaid as a former naval aviator who was accidentally injected into Martin Short during a botched mineralization test. It's an interesting movie, and it's one that deserved to perform better than it did at the box office. It would be Dante's second box office disappointment in a row after 1985's Underrated Explorers, and its $25 million box office in America would be unable to cover the $27 million production cost. Today, it's best known amongst film fans as the movie where Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan met and fell in love. The other 1987 Spielberg-produced film, Batteries Not Included, was originally written to be an episode of Amazing Stories, until Spielberg thought the idea was too good for a 22-minute television show. An elderly couple, played by Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin, are helped in the fight to keep their East Village apartment building from being destroyed by a pair of living spaceships. It is a really cute movie, thanks in large part to Tanny and Cronin, and the screenplay was partially written by the legendary Brad Bird. The alien spaceships are a bit off-putting, as was the location shooting in New York City's Lower East Side, but the film would globally gross nearly triple its $25 million production budget. Two more Spielberg-produced movies would hit theaters in 1988. The first would be the first movie he would ever make for Disney, and it would be the big hit of the summer. If Superman could make you believe a man could fly, Who Framed Roger Rabbit could make you believe cartoon characters could live amongst humans? It was a technical marvel when it came out, and when it outgrossed everything else released that summer. More than Big, more than Die Hard, more than Willow or Cocktail or Coming to America, more than Bull Durham and Rambo 3 and Young Gums combined. It was huge, and it would go on to win three Academy Awards, and also be awarded a Special Achievement Award for animation director Richard Williams. And it would be the first and so far only time Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, or Daffy Duck and Donald Duck, would be featured together on screen. Robert Zemeckis would cement his status as a top-flight filmmaker on this film, but only after Terry Gilliam turned it down because he felt he wasn't up to the technical challenges of the production. And it's really hard to imagine a better actor than Bob Hoskins to play Eddie Valiant, but he was not Spielberg's first choice. That would have been Harrison Ford, but his asking price at the time was much too high for a film that was already looking to go $20 million over its original $30 million budget. Nor was Hoskins his second choice. That would have been Bill Murray, but Murray claims he never got the message. Third choice would have been Eddie Murphy, who turned the role down. Other actors considered including Chevy Chase, Charles Roden, Ed Harris, Jack Nicholson, Robert Redford, Wallace Shawn, Sylvester Stallone, and Robin Williams. The other Spielberg-produced movie for 1988 was the Don Bluth-led animation film The Land Before Time, which also had George Lucas as a producer. While they were working on An American Tale, Spielberg approached Bluth about making a movie like Bambi, but with dinosaurs. It is said that the production on Land was much more grueling than on Tale, and Bluth would never work with Spielberg again. The Land Before Time would literally gross the exact same amount as American Tale, and almost with the exact same split between domestic and foreign. $84.5 million worldwide, 56% of that domestic, 44% foreign. While American Tale would spawn three sequels, The Land Before Time would be the first in a series that would end up with 14 movies to date. Spielberg would end the decade with two more productions. Well, two and a tenth. The first one would be the first Roger Rabbit cartoon, Tummy Trouble, which would play in front of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Baby Herman causes much mayhem over the course of the short's seven-minute run, and it would follow the template set up by the cartoon that opened the original movie, ending with breaking the fourth wall and seeing the production of the movie at the end of the short. The first proper movie of the year would be Dad, which, like Continental Divide, would be an atypical Spielberg production, and that it's a straight family dramedy without any fantastical elements. Written and directed by Family Ties creator Gary David Goldberg, and based on a novel by William Wharton, who also wrote the novels that would become the basis for Birdie and for A Midnight Clear, the film follows three generations of men in a family as they try to deal with each other after a medical emergency concerning the family matriarch brings them back together. It's got a cast to die for, including Jack Lemmon, Ted Danson, Olympia Dukakis, Kathy Baker, Ethan Hawke, and J.T. Walsh, but it's not a very good movie. My only memory of it is that I took my then-girlfriend, while on vacation in Los Angeles from Santa Cruz, to see it at the Beverly Center Cineplex in one of their then-new added theaters in the building. Little did I know at the time I would be a manager at that very theater less than two years later, or that I would be the general manager who would be closing that theater in 2010. The final Spielberg production of the decade would be Back to the Future 2. Featuring most of the same cast and most of the same behind-the-scenes talent, the film suffered from an insane amount of unnecessary darkness and meanness. It's an ugly film that I think I've seen maybe once since its original theatrical release. Back to the Future 2 would end up grossing little more than half of the original film. And the best thing about it would be that it sets up the far superior and far more enjoyable Western-themed Back to the Future Part Three. As the decade ended, Spielberg would be involved in a number of productions that would see release in 1990. Arachnophobia would be the directorial debut of his longtime producing partner Frank Marshall, and it would be the first movie released under Disney's Hollywood Pictures label, meant to fill the gap between the Disney family label and the more adult-themed films of Touchstone Pictures. Back to the Future 3 would get better reviews than its predecessor, but it would only gross about 75% of what Part 2 made. Gremlins 2, the new batch, was a far better film than the original, in large part because Joe Dante was given carte blanche to make the movie he wanted to make, but the film would not perform very well when it was finally released. Joe vs. the Volcano would be the directorial debut of Moonstruck writer and playwright John Patrick Shanley, and would be the first on-screen pairing for Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. It's a strange little movie, and it wasn't a big success upon release, but it was clear these two stars had insane chemistry together, and they would be teamed twice more in the 90s by director Nora Ephron to greater effect. And then there was Dreams, the 29th film by Kira Kurosawa. Spielberg was not intimately involved in the production, but he helped lend financial and morale support to make sure Kurosawa could complete his ambitious omnibus movie based on his own recurring dreams. The 15 movies produced or executive produced during the 1980s by Steven Spielberg, not counting the films he directed, accounted for $1.04 billion in domestic box office grosses, which, adjusted for inflation, would be nearly $2.5 billion today. About half a billion dollar more than all of the Fast and Furious movies combined, including Hobbs and Shaw. Steven Spielberg, the producer and the director, would be defined by the movies he produced and directed during the 1980s, but he would find his biggest success as a filmmaker in the 1990s. He would win two Academy Awards for directing Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, and a Best Picture Oscar for Schindler. He would never be again as prolific a director or producer during any other decade than he was in the 1980s. But he would help produce two of the biggest franchises in movie history in the 1990s and 2000s, Men in Black and Transformers. He's also helped produce movies by acclaimed filmmakers such as Damien Chazelle, The Coen Brothers, Clint Eastwood, and Peter Jackson. How we in history will see Steven Spielberg will be largely based on his films of the 1980s, which happens. Ilya Kazan directed movies for 31 years, but film history mostly focuses on his output in the 10-year period between 1947 and 1957, which includes two Best Picture winners, Gentleman's Agreement and On the Waterfront. Frank Capra directed movies for 39 years, but when we discuss Capra movies, we're mostly focused on the 12-year period between 1934 and 1946, which also included two Best Picture winners in It Happened One Night and You Can't Take It With You. John Huston directed for 46 years, but it's that 10-year period between Maltese Falcon in 1941 and The African Queen in 1951 where the majority of the focus of his career is centered. It's almost impossible to remember a time when Steven Spielberg wasn't a part of the film industry. When his version of West Side Story is released the theaters in 2020, he will have been a working filmmaker in Hollywood for 49 years. He will have directed 34 films produced 83 others, and have written the stories and or screenplays for six of those. Those are staggering numbers. Amongst his contemporaries, only Clint Eastwood will have directed more movies, with Richard Jewell, that'd be 38 and counting, and no other director with his own production company in the past half century will have helped get more films made. Steven Spielberg, to borrow from a long-dead film fan website that he should have been always listed in the first place, he is a God amongst directors. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which helps the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast page at FilmJerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again, and good night. It's only talk arguments, agreements, advice, answers, art, announcements.